scripture passage we're going to be looking at this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 12 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this passion, this portion of your word this morning, uh, give us a great desire to be attentive to your truth and to recognize that all that you have revealed in Scripture is designed uh, to teach us, uh, to correct us, uh, to reprove us, uh, even to train us in righteousness uh, so that we can be fully prepared and equipped for every good thing that you might call us to do as those who are designated in Scripture as ambassadors of the gospel, uh, salt and light to this world, uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus, uh, those who would carry uh, the precious message of Christ to others in this world. And so, Father, please use your word to keep setting us apart, keep sanctifying our lives, keep giving us hope, motivation, conviction to be all that you would want us to be, uh, to truly live out those good works that you have prepared for us in this world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, about the time we were finishing church last Sunday, and then uh, after our fellowship luncheon and so forth, many of us begin to hear about the very, very sad and tragic news of the death of Kobe Bryant in the helicopter crash down in Calabasas. You know, nine people were killed. Uh, Kobe, age 41, his daughter, age 13, uh, the pilot, and six others. Uh, this happened across the street from a church that many of us are familiar with. It's a sister church, a church in the canyon, belongs to our denomination. And uh, the Washington Post this last Wednesday, uh, actually in their reporting of what they knew so far, gave a very, very favorable uh, uh, amount of detail and attention uh, to um, Church in the Canyon and the response of its members uh, at this time. Um, everybody, of course, heard the explosion and people rushed out to see what was going on and uh, a lot of crowds began to gather wondering what was going on and then as news 
happened that people understood that this was a helicopter being flown by Kobe Bryant, which news got out very, very fast. Uh, people began to gather, uh, broken-hearted fans of Kobe, and the church responded. They held a spontaneous prayer meeting. Uh, they individually counseled with many uh, who were just gr who fans who were heartbroken, grief-stricken. Um, uh, the church supplied uh, power strips outside and inside for people to recharge their cell phones. They opened up the, their bathrooms. They just did everything that you would want Christians to do for people who are brokenhearted over a tragedy, over someone who seemingly, and all nine of these people, uh, experienced an, an untimely, tragic, shocking kind of death. Uh, all of Los Angeles major parts of the sports world in grief all this past week. It, it probably affected you. If you've got any sports uh, fandom in your heart or what, it probably affected you. Uh, probably a sadness. Uh, Al Mohler, who is a, a, a brilliant um, a Baptist theologian, someone that uh, I listen to very, very regularly, a president of a Southern Seminary in Louisville. Did I say that right? Louisville? <laughs> Um, he, on, his, on this week on the briefing, uh, talked about the death of Kobe Bryant, talked about sports celebritydom, celebritydom, whatever, uh, how we, we will often be completely unattached to someone in terms of a genuine personal relationship. But when it's someone whose career we have followed, when, it, when it's someone that has had incredible notoriety, incredible success, all of this. When we followed such a person, and, and this happens, we feel it. And, and uh, Dr. Muller said, this is real and genuine grief. As Christians, he said, we need to have a worldview response to this kind of thing and what's going on. First, recognizing the reality of the grief. People are shocked by this. But then he goes on to say a proper worldview analysis will begin to raise the question, when someone's life is tragically cut short, are people responding to death with the right set of questions? The Christian worldview perspective would say something like this. This sudden, from our perspective, untimely death would speak to all of us that the calendar life on everybody has a final page. At the same time, no one has the ability to look toward the end of that calendar and see when it is. I used to say to my students again and again as I was trying to impress upon them the significance of everything they do in life to waste no opportunity. None of you know whether you have 10 more minutes to live. And at 9.37 last Sunday morning, nine people did not know they had 10 more minutes to live. None of us do. And even with the coronavirus, the specter of death looms very, very large. Now, now, the proper biblical context for understanding all of that, of course, is the whole narrative of Scripture, going back to Genesis, especially chapter 3. 
Because in Genesis chapter 3, where we've already read in chapter 1 and chapter 2 how God created human beings, how he created us in his image, in his likeness, created us for love and fellowship with him, that we would be those who would bear his image and then multiply his image throughout the world. We read in chapter 3 that the first and perfect humans God created rebelled against God and sinned and fell. And so all of us who are born into this world bear the full force of the sin of Adam and Eve. You might look at it this way. You know, we're not only biologically connected to Adam and Eve in terms of, you know, a genetic descendancy. You know, uh, their DNA is our DNA. But spiritually, their spiritual DNA is our DNA. Their spiritual defection from God, their moral defection from God, is that which all of us are born into. All of us have inherited that. All of us are, are guilty as Scripture would point us to, we're guilty of what Adam and Eve did, called original sin. It infects all of us. It afflicts all of us. It affects all of us in terms of, uh, uh, of just the corruption of who we are and the continued indwelling sin even in the life of a Christian. We know the gospel story is that there's only one answer. We know that the, the story apart from the gospel is that DNA that we've gotten from Adam, that spiritual DNA, has one outcome only. We die. And in death, pass into an eternal separation from God, for which there is no exit. Jesus said of that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth without end a place of the most horrible psychological, emotional, physical torment that we could possibly imagine. Now, the gospel then speaks to that. The gospel is the only message that can ultimately and ever speak to that. And when we look at the Apostle Paul here, as first he gives his own biographical, and then as he relates his own biographical to the gospel message, and then as he relates the gospel message to the glory of God, we recognize this truth. The gospel changes everything. Because the gospel is the only thing that has the power to radically change your life for both time and eternity. And, and that's what I want us to focus on as we look at these verses this morning from 12 to 17. The, the passage itself naturally divides itself in, into three succinct points. Uh, verses 12 through 14 is about the gospel for Paul, the sinner. <laughs> and then from uh, 15 and 16, it's about the gospel for all who are sinners. And then verse 17, sort of the climax of the passage, is about the gospel that brings glory to God who saves sinners. And that's what I want us to see. I want us to recognize and see the gospel. The gospel that changes everything because it transforms life for this life and for all eternity. So we begin by looking at uh, verses 12, 13, and 14 where Paul is doing a, a biographical recollection. So we can call this section 
the gospel for Paul, who identifies himself as a sinner. So we begin by looking, well, let's read the verses first, once again, so we have them clearly before us. Where Paul says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, a biographical recollection here of his own conversion and call to ministry. You know, they happened at the same time. He gets converted and called to be an apostle right at the same time. So note how he speaks about this gospel that has saved him. First, with thankfulness. Thankfulness for a God who has delivered him out of the helplessness of unbelief and given him the strength to believe. Because when he says, I thank him who has given me strength, he's talking about God, Christ, giving him the power to believe, the strength to believe, the ability to believe. So he credits Christ for his salvation completely. I owe my salvation to Christ, Paul is saying here. Then he reflects on what he was. What was he delivered out of? He describes himself. He uses three words. He says he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was an insolent opponent. Now, all of these are connected with Paul's pre-Christian life, that period of time that he was a dedicated foe of the early church, the earliest days of Christianity. Uh, Luke describes this twice this way, Acts 8, verse 3. But Saul, Paul's pre-Christian name, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then the next chapter begins this way, chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Paul is still persecuting Then, um, later in Paul's life, he's in Jerusalem, and a Jewish mob grabs him. They want to put him to death. He has an opportunity to speak to them uh, under the uh, auspices or protection of a Roman centurion. And, And so he addresses them, and he says to them that he is the one who persecuted the church, that he was binding and delivering both men and women over to prison, on behalf of the Jewish council. Uh, He was doing this such that they were being put to death. The Apostle Paul said that before he became a believer, he didn't just persecute the church. His persecution was responsible for innocent Jewish believers in Jesus getting put to death. And then Paul talks about the mercy of God. Granted to him. In light of what he'd done, granted to him, because as Paul says, he had acted in ignorance of unbelief. Paul, as Saul, really thought he was serving the God of Scripture and doing what he was doing. Because if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, if he was a false Messiah then there should have been a death penalty for Jesus and a death penalty for any of those who would worship Christ. Scripture, Deuteronomy 18, would make that very clear. 
You see, Paul never had any firsthand knowledge of Jesus. Never knew him before he was crucified. All of the narrative he had about, the, about Jesus himself was a false narrative. A false narrative concocted by the Jewish leadership, uh, both uh, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of the, uh, all of the Jewish leadership had conspired together to have this one narrative that Jesus was a false messiah. We know from the gospel accounts that most of them had firsthand knowledge of Jesus, his miracles, his character. There's an important distinction here. Um, there is evil that is done, and those who do it know they're doing evil. We call that satanic, because that's what Satan does. We call that demonic. Because all the demons know that all the evil they perpetrate, they're perpetrating against truth. And history has given us any number of human beings who know that the things they're doing, they're doing, and they know that they're wrong, they know that they're not true, they know that they're false. So, you know, all the current fake news today isn't anything new. (laughs) The Jewish leadership was giving fake news, a fake narrative to Paul for Paul to go do what he did. But why should we be surprised? Where did fake news begin? In the garden. When Satan lied to Eve and deceived her. So Paul could honestly say, what I did, I did in ignorance, the ignorance of unbelief. So, in a sense here, there's a strong suggestion that where God is merciful to those who sin in ignorance and unbelief, there may be not mercy toward those who sin with knowledge against the truth of Christ. Just something to think about. It's probably why Satan and the fallen angels have no redemption. There's no mercy in all of Scripture toward them. It is a serious thing to be defiant against the living God. As a preacher, I could offer no hope for someone who would say to me, I don't care. Yeah, I know that what you say is true. I don't care. Well, I'll pray for you. But in my heart, I would wonder if this is some kind of sin unto death. I don't know. But we know what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying there was mercy before God. Because what I did, I honestly did in the ignorance of unbelief. Then Paul goes on to talk about the grace. Now the grace that he received was not a barely adequate grace. Some of us live our Christian lives as though the grace of God was just a barely adequate grace. It's just enough to make God not hate me, but I don't know if it's enough to make God love me. We often live that way. So pay close attention to Paul's experience here. He talks about a grace that is an overbounding grace, an abundance of grace. It really reminds us of what Paul says at the end of chapter 5 of Romans, where he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 
Paul could speak of this overwhelming overabundance, this richness of grace that overtook his life. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. It was God's gracious giving of this grace to him. And then he mentions faith and love that are in Christ. Now, the significance of that is that this faith that he has that has come from God replaces the unbelief that he had. This love that he now has replaces the murderous hatred he had for Christians. So now Paul's testimony is that the gospel has radically transformed me. It has changed everything. It has given me that which I never had before. I know my Messiah. And I have a love for those who are the body of Christ. And that was a reminder then to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. Right? Paul could say, the way this hit me, the gospel, the way it affected me. Timothy, it's affected you this way too. True believers at Ephesus, it's radically transformed you as well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been made alive in Christ. Now then the second thing, the second section of what Paul says here is verses 15 and 16. So let's read those verses. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But... I receive mercy. Now notice, here's the second read. He's going to repeat exactly the same phrase. But I received mercy for this reason, a second reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So in a nutshell, Paul is speaking of how the gospel is designed for all. That is, it's designed for for all who identify themselves as sinners. The gospel message, not just for Paul, but a gospel message for all. And so Paul begins by describing this. He says, first and foremost, it is a trustworthy statement. It is a faithful saying. It is such a statement that stands in great contrast to what he was talking about earlier. The false teachers who were spouting off myths and speculations and endless genealogies and who were abusers with respect to the law of Moses on how it should be taught. The great contrast to all of that which is false is the gospel. That's what's trustworthy. And he goes on to say, and it's deserving of full acceptance. Uh, Some people have thought about this and thought, hmm, that really sounds too good to be true. (laughs) Right? I mean, most people want to say, I think you ought to get saved because of how good you are. I think you ought to be saved because your good works outweigh your bad works. I think you ought to get saved according to the bar of justice. If you've been a good person, then you ought to go to heaven. If you've not been a good person, you ought to go to hell. A lot of people think that way, which wouldn't be a problem if there were any good people who could pass the bar of justice. If God saved on the basis of justice, heaven would be empty and hell would be the destiny of everybody. But God saves on the basis of his grace and his mercy. And 
And so that's why this is not too good to be true. It's incredible, but true. It's why it's worthy of our ultimate loyalty. It's worthy of our deepest commitment. Because it is the most significant message we could ever possibly imagine. And then Paul immediately goes into the mission of Christ. Now, the brevity of Paul stands out in terms of greatest significance. Why did Jesus come? Paul says, it is to save sinners. Now that tells us that this is the main thing about the gospel. The main thing. In our Christian life, you must always keep the main thing, the main thing. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Let's break it down. He came into this world, meaning he was with his Father in heaven. He came because he was sent. The Father's love sent the Son. It didn't, it, it's not that, some people misunderstand, they think the gospel is Jesus died for me to take away my sin so that the Father would love me. No. The Father loved you and sent his Son to enable you to come into his family by grace, by the work of Christ, so that you would experience his love. Secondly, to save sinners. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. The mission of Christ, specifically Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Christ, the seed of the woman, the serpent, that primitive but valid representation of the satanic presence in the garden. The seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. That's the mission. Jesus delivering sinners out of their estate of darkness so that they could be translated into his own kingdom. By virtue of Christ crushing the satanic foe that deceived our first parents. Now, what we need to understand is Jesus came to save sinners. Uh, at the heart of every conflict, at the heart of every awful situation, at the core of every problem you have faced or ever will face, you will find human sin. Human thoughts, human words, human actions, which miss the mark, which fail to be godly, which fail to be Christ-like. Jesus came for this, to save sinful human beings, to make us right with God. Simple as this. Sin has broken the world. Sin has broken our lives. We need the one who came to save sinners who are broken. 
And then Paul returns to his personal biography again as he describes this, because he could see himself as the foremost of sinners, even the chief of sinners. Now, I want you to understand what this analogy is like. Let's line up in one line all the sinners who've ever lived. Paul would say, I'm at the front of the line. We're ranked from the worst to the least. I'm at the front of the line. Why? I killed Christians. That, that's, that's his position. But then he goes on to talk about how, why did, why did God show me this mercy when I'm the foremost, the chief of sinners? In the line of sinners, I'm at the front. Why? And Paul says, for this reason, there could be those who would think that they are too sinful to be saved. They recognize themselves as sinful. They, they, I have not kept the law of God. I don't deserve anything from God but justice, and that's not a good thing to get from God. And, but they might think that, that how could God love me? And so Paul sets forth his own life, his own testimony, and says, I am the foremost, so that in me, in my salvation, mercy given to me, Christ might display his perfect patience toward anyone else who might believe. There's a kind of argument here, kind of logic. Hey, you're worried whether, whether you could be saved? Well, if, if the foremost of sinners, if the guy at the first of the line can be saved, and, and, God has, and Christ has his perfect patience toward the one who's the first of the line, if mercy shown to him then surely mercy is going to be shown to anyone else in the line afterwards. It's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful analogy. It's a wonderful truth. And Paul says that, that God saved him as someone who killed Christians. The worst thing that you could do is to kill those that Jesus has saved. And as an example that there's a patience and a mercy in Christ available to all those who would come to Jesus by faith. We come then to the last point, verse 17. Verse 17 testifies to how Paul sees the gospel for himself, how Paul sees the gospel toward others, and how that gospel leads to the glory of God. The glory of God because God saves sinners. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that statement there is a doxology. A doxology is a statement of phrase. A statement of glory. So this is where Paul's personal gospel recollection takes him. This is where a recollection of the gospel itself takes him. It takes him to the point of recognizing and understanding that we are saved unto the praise of the glory of God's grace. We are saved unto the glory of God. When Paul thinks about his salvation, when Paul thinks about the salvation of others, Paul is led to give God the glory. Now, what does that teach us? We should be like Paul. 
we ought to think about how God has saved us. Often. We ought to think about how God saves other people. Often. And then we ought to, as we think about these things, give glory to God all the time. Matthew Henry, that late Puritan commentator, has expressed this kind of thought on this passage. He essentially says this. I'm paraphrasing him, but, but he says, But when we see and realize the goodness of God, then we ought to praise the greatness of God. Because the greatness of God is demonstrated in this gospel of grace salvation. The greatness of God is that God would send his own son into this world to effectually secure the salvation of those who have sinned against God. It brings God glory. And then in particular, in this doxology, the apostle gives us several essential features and understanding of God. Here's what he says. First, he's the eternal God. He is literally the king of the ages. God is king over all of time and over time and space because time and space are things which God created. That's why he's sovereign over all of the ages. Time doesn't affect God. God totally affects time. Time has no hold on God. Time has no grip on God. Time has no influence upon God. God is completely sovereign over every single moment of time because he's king over all of the ages. That's what it means for God to be eternal. And then we read that he's immortal. Now, the Greek here doesn't mean like human beings living or dying. The Greek word has a deeper meaning as it applies to God. It talks about God being imperishable or incorruptible, which essentially means God never changes. If God changed at all, he would have to become less than what he is now, or he'd have to become better than what he is now. Uh, God can't get worse than he is now because he's God. He can't deny himself. God can't get better than what he is now because God is infinitely great and infinitely good. God is incorruptible. Nothing changes God. The bedrock foundation of our faith, God doesn't change. God will never change. If he loved you yesterday, he will love you today. He will love you tomorrow. If you belong to Christ, the Christ who never changes holds you in his hand. The Father holds you in his hand. Because God is God. His love, grace, mercy to you will never change. God is also invisible, Paul says. Why is he invisible? What does it take to be visible? You who have some knowledge of physics, you know it takes a body to reflect light. Well, all bodies are finite. God isn't finite. God doesn't have a body. God can't be seen because God is himself the source of all things by which we see. First chapter of John, the Gospel of John, we read what John says. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
who was at their father's side, he has made him known. We could spend an hour talking about that, but we must move on. So the fourth thing which Paul says is that he is the only God. There can only be one God. There can only be one God who's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. Uh, There can't be two infinite gods because if there were two infinite gods, impossible, but if there were two infinite gods, one infinite God would have something that the other infinite God doesn't have But if you're infinite, you possess in yourself all possible things that can possibly be that are good. So they would be one and the same. It's impossible logically for there to be two infinite gods. There's only one God. This one God and God alone is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end who is himself the creator of all other things that exist. Now, that's the greatness of God that Paul is talking about. What he is, is the basis for doxology. What he has done is a further reason for doxology. And what Paul says here, honor and glory to God, echoes what we find in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. There we have the 24 elders around the throne of God casting down their crowns. And this is what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they have existed and they were created. Paul gives his full thought to the gospel and how he was saved. And when he does so, He is moved to worship God in all of his glory and all of his greatness. Now, let me finish by summing up. The message of the gospel. It is the good news that changes everything. It changes your eternal destiny. You will dwell with God. You will live with his goodness and his love forever rather than experience the eternal torment for your sin. It changes your life now. You have a Savior who has fully dealt with all of your sins and all of your sinfulness. Uh, Your original sin, your actual sin, your indwelling sin, it is all dealt with by Christ. It gives you an identity that is solid, stable, genuine, and unchangeable. You are in Christ. You are adopted into God's family. Your true home is with the triune God. Your true genealogy changed the moment you accepted Christ by faith. Your spiritual DNA was Adam's. Now your spiritual DNA comes from the fact that God has adopted you into his family. You are called a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. Your genealogy redesigned by God to reflect the fact that you are his workmanship. You're rooted and grounded in his son. And even now, while you sit here, you are also seated with Christ in the heavenly places.
the gospel changes everything. May God grant all of us the grace to see all of this and to believe all of this. A grace that might seem to be too good to be true. But it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into this world to save sinners just like us. Let's pray. We thank you for the gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gospel. Give us the grace and faith to believe it to the fullest, to be able to see in it everything the Apostle Paul saw in the gospel, that we would be moved to thank you often for our salvation, that we would be moved in gratitude for the salvation of others, that we would be moved to give you, God, all glory for your saving grace. In Jesus' name.